Welcome to the next episode of the Next Report Unix and Overlook Pop Culture with Thomas, Mitchell, and Zach. Uh, this week we are going to talk about something that, well, we probably should have talked about last week in all honesty now that I think about it, but that was my bad. The recent conflict with Israel and Syria. It's not really recent, but you're talking about the the stopping of the shipping, shipping of weapons. Because there's been, of course, flare-ups going back to the Yom Kippur War and stuff like that. Right. But the whole thing that has happened has kind of gotten a few people on edge. So, um, Zach, it was, it was, you were chomping at the bit for this. Why don't you tell everybody what had happened and everything else? Okay. Um, as you all know, uh, the Syrian civil war um, has been occurring for a little over two years now. Um, current estimations estimate that the number of people who have died in this conflict is um, surpassing 100,000 people. Millions of Syrians are continuing uh, to be displaced throughout the region. Um, Israel has taken an active interest in the developments in Syria. Currently, um, rebels have taken over a town called Khan al-Assal, which is one of the last towns in the Aleppo district that was controlled by the Syrian military forces. Now, this is a really big victory for the Syrian rebels, but taken in con uh, into context with the push by the Assad military forces, the Assad military has taken an upper hand in the conflict and is receiving um, weapons and um, and additional fighters from various countries, weapons from Russia, which we'll get into here a little bit later, and we're, and Assad has um, been able to actively recruit other Shiite groups throughout the region. Um, this isn't just within uh, Syria, like I've, like I've alluded to. He's been able to recruit uh, fighters from Iran, Lebanon, and Iraq, and uh, largely this conflict has a lot of sectarian tones with Shiites and Sunni Muslims being pitted against one another. In Syria right now, uh, Bashar al-Assad has been able to um, secure some sophisticated missiles from Russia here and there. Most recently, as, um, as of last week, Israel conducted a preemptive military airstrike, at least that's what the reports from CNN and the New York Times have concluded, an airstrike on a weapons depot in Syria. Uh, the Latakia Air Base, or Latakia um, Arms Depot, I'm sorry. And the reason why they attacked this arms depot is because it was carrying um, very sophisticated uh, range missiles that are able to shoot over 300 kilometers. Um, and this posed a significant worry for Israel as the Syrian 
uh, regime of Bashar al-Assad continues to lose grip on their weapons, and there's, all, there's always a continuous threat that these weapons are falling into the hands of terrorist groups and other government-related agencies who are then using those weapons to attack innocent civilians in Syria and abroad. And going into Syria and what had happened with it, it was a, it was a former part of the Ottoman Empire province of Syria. Uh, France acquired it after World War One. Uh, they, until it was granted independence in 1946, according to the CIA World Factbook, this country lacked political stability in September 61. Oh man, I'm, I need to quit jumping forward here. In February of 1958, they... Um, United with Egypt, but they would separate in 1961. And Al Al-Assad, the son of Bashir al-Assad, is 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 currently going you know going through this conflict against the rebels. Basically, lots of political instability. Um, there's been some concessions, but it's not enough for the rebels. Uh, there's been lots of economic sanctions, which has contracted the economy. And a lot, a lot of their stuff, and I actually did some calculations on military spending, Israel's military spending far outseeds, or far exceeds that of Syria, which ex partially explains why they have to recruit outside help. Um, in addition to um, the developments um, within Syria, um, I'm not sure how many of our viewers have recently heard um, this or not. Um, the Al-Yamuk district of Damascus, which is a um, district in Syria that has received a lot of Palestinian refu refugees over the years, was just yesterday um, attacked with chemical and biological weapons by Bashar al-Assad, killing 22 people. Um, the leadership of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad um, left Syria um, quite some time ago for Iran, but they've, uh, before this event, maintained a relationship with Syria, but Hamas um, closed its offices in Damascus this year, and they announced that they're renouncing Alawit Assad, the um, fighters supporting um, Bashar al-Assad, and instead are supporting the Sunni rebels in Syria. So we have an impetus by the, um, by the Bashar al-Assad government to attack these um, refugees. And what's concerning about what's happening in Syria right now is that this civil war um, that's been raging for well over two years now has the propensity of expanding beyond Syria's borders to include powerful agents um, within the Middle East, such as Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, but also other powers that have significant interests within the region, such as the United States, um, Britain, France, as well as Russia. Uh, we've already alluded to what Russia is doing with the supplying of weapons to Syria. I want to uh, get in touch with this a little bit because it does pose a pretty significant security risk to Israel. As I um, talked about earlier, Russia recently... Um, has sent missiles to Syria, and these new missiles that they've sent 
Um, and we'll have a link um, posted to you for additional information on um, what Russia and what these other powers have been sending to Syria and other powers. Have the ability of um, give the ability to Syria to launch attacks on Western naval ships that are supplying arms and medical supplies and other supplies to the Syrian rebels. So on a meta level, what we have is Syria being able to directly um, uh, directly attack uh, the basically the pipelines of resources that are going to these rebels. So although um, the Syrian rebels have been able to make some advances within Aleppo and other districts within Syria, there's the widening risk that um, it might be a little too little too late given the weapons and the sophistication of these weapons that Bashar al-Assad has. Now I want to get um, I want to turn it over to Mitchell real quick to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, what he sees out of the, out of the broader implications for the Middle East as well as Western nations like the United States. Well, I think that if, am I cor it's correct that Syria's main ally is Iran, right? That's correct. That's correct. And the question I have is with Syria, the because I mean anybody who knows about the Middle East and knows about Islam and has studied it knows about the sectarian differences. People who are more reactionary or don't have a knowledge base assume that it's all one cluster of thought and people. And we, I mean, we saw in Iraq in 2006 what happens when those uh, sectarian divisions turn into flashpoints. And with I, when the majority of, in, of Muslims in Syria are the Alawites, right? Well, the Alawites, and the, and yeah, the Alawites are the Shi or the Shiites. Um, the Alawite Assad are the, the forces who are assisting Bashar al-Assad right now. They're they're that would be the dominant Assad. force. So the question right. I have is, I think it was a couple months ago, another shipment of arms from Iran to Syria also came under attack on Israel. That's correct. What is or what can we speculate of uh, Iran's in in-game plan involvement? Well, the in-game plan involvement for Iran is to maintain um, the government of Bashar al-Assad. Obviously, it's um, their relationship goes back for decades, but if Bashar al-Assad were to fall and a Western, um, a government favoring Western interests were uh, to be elected, then it poses, it kind of puts the screws to Iran in terms of um, getting on board and trying to resolve the issues that are currently around their nuclear uh, weapons program. Um, in addition, um, in terms of the in terms of the resources that are being sent from Iran to Syria, what is incredibly dangerous about the um, about the shipments that Mitchell was referring to is that these shipments are going from Iran over Iraqi airspace into Syria. So, in terms of the United States' direct military engagement, now we're seriously in, uh, have to be involved because it could create a backsliding of the. Um, progress that we've made, especially in southern Iraq, um, especially where the sectarian tensions are at their very highest. Um, but, but I mean, like I've already said, Iran absolutely wants to maintain Bashar al-Assad. Without Bashar al-Assad, then it could be fairly quickly that we're calling for, um, again, for Iran's nuclear weapons program to be terminated. What do you think, if, if explain further what Iran's interest in is many some, some type of 
hegemony, or at least Islamic hegemony versus a Western-style government, what do you think is the... I mean, if we were to just sort of say what if or play devil's advocate, uh, if uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad's Bashar al government was to fall, what do you think would come in place? Because I think if we were to look at patterns within other Middle Eastern nations, I question, because of the, the long-standing cultural imprint of Islam, I think that it would, majority of these Middle Eastern states, the fall of, of one government, whether it's secular or Islamic, is more likely to be replaced with some form of Islamic-leaning government, if not a full-fledged theocracy. I see that as more common. Right. If Syria were to fall, and if Bashar al-Assad's government were to be ousted, um, I think what would happen would it, it would be kind of be like what is well not necessarily what's happening in Egypt necessarily because that was a military coup but we have kind of this splintering um, notion of a government until one it will fully come into fruition until then what we'll have I think is a lot of demands um, by the moderates within um, within Iran uh, I'm sorry within Syria to possibly elect um, a government that would promote human rights within the country, would stabilize their economy, and be a little bit more on board with U.S. interests. Because um, the, the vast majority of the Syrians who are fighting or who either elected to maintain neutrality um, are, are moderates. They're, uh, I mean, I use that term very, very loosely because moder uh, political moderate within a Western culture is a lot different than political moderate in any other culture because... Political moderates in this country usually aren't waving Kalashnikov. <laughs> right. I think if that's one, um, one barometer we were to use. Right. I mean, I mean we, we don't necessarily tie a Judeo-Christian aspect necessarily to our politics. I'm talking on a national level. I mean, we yes, we still have a lot of these groups, and we can, we can talk until we're blue in the face about all these various groups that try to conflate religion with political ideology but in the Middle East when you have um, you have definitely a cultural um, conflict occurring between or a religious conflict occurring between Sunnis and Shiites and now you're compounding that conflict with well now who assumes power now then then it, it becomes a little bit more complex now um, with regards to this shifting outside of Syria's borders, we've already kind of alluded to this a little bit with the potential threat that um, that a uh, very armed Syria poses to the security of Israel. But in addition, it is, in my opinion, turning our view away from other really critical security issues such as a nuclear-enriched um, uh, nuclear weapon program in in Iran. Well, I want to I want to ask you a question. Why why is that a threat? Why is that a threat to U.S. interest any more than a nuclear Pakistan? And India and Pakistan both went nuclear. I think the exact year was '98. So why is that more of a threat than a nuclear Pakistan? There's um there are oh, two reasons. One is that um, the IAEA and Israel have both confirmed this week that Iran possesses 182 kilograms of 20% enriched uranium. Um, they need 250 in order to make a nuclear weapon that's capable of doing um, uh, some significant damage. Now, 
with a nuclear Iran, Israel has already already feels emboldened to take action against Iran because of kind of a wavering, unclarified position by the Barack Obama administration mm -hmm. on the Iranian question. Now, Ehud al or no, I'm sorry, not Ehud Al-Merit, that was several administrations ago. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu previously said that they are they, that they do reserve the right to take preemptive military action against mm -hmm. Iran in the event that the United States is not willing to intercede in the conflict and possibly mm -hmm. help Israel out. Now, if Israel and Iran were to get into any military conflict, we're talking, they might not use chemical or biological or nuclear weapons, but what we're talking about is uh, compounding of the current sectarian tensions that are happening within the Middle East. Be normally, I mean, within Iran, a lot of the Shiite groups are, although they don't, that would ever directly side with Israel, a little bit more privy to listening to Israel and about the security concerns of the Middle East. Um, but as a Why right, would you say that, that Shiites are in Iran? Oh, uh, no, no, don't get me wrong. Shiite, there are plenty of Shiite groups that would side with Israel or would side with Iran. But again, what we're talking about is a protracted military conflict between two regional hegemons and then the compounding of sectarian tensions on top of it. I would honestly find it uh, almost counter nature for an Iranian Shiite to side, to side with Israel. I see that as acting against, against their own interests. If we're talking about the maintenance of <clears throat> security within the region, um, I mean, not not everybody wants to see the Middle East up in up in flames, and so it wouldn't be necessary. John Hagee does. I mean, <laughs> that's somebody you could put into that category. Um, and so, so I mean, Sunni and Shia groups alike do have an interest in seeing the preservation of the Middle East if they believe that the ultimate goal of of this weapons program is to basically stir the um, stir the pot up a little bit until we get to a powder cake situation. I think for, but for someone who is a nationalist, and if people do their history, the Iranian Revolution itself, it was sort of a combination of uh, jihadists. It, wasn't, it was as much about Persian nationalism as it was about Islam. A, nas a nationalist wants to see the preservation of their own state, of their own nation state, not of a, a region as a whole. If somebody like, a, you know, a, a, if we were to use an older model, a French nationalist is a Frenchman first and a European second. Certainly, and there, to be fair, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of groups that do have nationalistic tendencies in Iran, and there are those groups in most, if not all, the countries within the Middle East. Um, and so an Iranian nationalist probably doesn't see it as prudent to side with Israel if, you know, if they do have those nationalistic tendencies. Um, but what we're talking, uh, the, the important thing to take into consideration here is that if, I mean, the, the likelihood of a military conflict occurring now within the Middle East is that, to me, an all-time high. I mean, we're talking including, obviously... Including, post, including U.S. involvement. Right. We're, I mean, obviously we're talking about we're talking about in a post-1948-68 Yom Kippur war environment in the Middle East when tensions are already high because of the question of who has what right to what land. Mm -hmm. um, but also you have the issue of regional hegemony between 
um, Israel and Iran. And then now you have the involvement of outside powers, such as Russia supplying weapons to um, Bashar al-Assad. You have the United States and the European Union supplying weapons to the, well, not weapons, um, well, yes, weapons, but it's on <laughs> what country. Um, but a lot of uh, non-lethal assistance being given to the Syrian rebels. And so this has the potential of being a broader conflagration if... Is, is that reason enough, is that impetus enough for U.S. involvement? Because if, as we've talked before on previous episodes, that, uh, that as, you know, as we live in a post-Cold War era, then shouldn't we have to change strategy? You could say because U.S. has ties to Israel or because of possible involvement of Russia, but the position I come from is questioning the existence of those ties and the existence of the involvement. So the fact that this has an ability to spread to a regional conflict, is that reason enough for the U.S. to get involved? I would say no. Uh, I would have to probably disagree with you there. Um, the, we're talking about a region that has uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people in it that... These countries, you know, we're not talking about, like, the distance between, like, Missouri and Texas. We're mm -hmm. talking about these countries are right up against each other. If any, uh, hypothetically speaking, if any biological, nuclear, radiological weapon mm -hmm. were to um, were to be detonated, we're talking about thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people being killed in the initial um, conflict. Do you, do you and then, think that's, what do you, what do you think the likelihood of that is? Because what you're going to is worst possible case scenario. Right. right. The likelihood of a, of a broader conflict happening. Or actually, one to, to contextualize what you previously said, is in, in a nuclear or biological, we're talking about mass devastation, right. mass destruction. I do not foresee that conflict happening. I, I think that given the amount of aid, military aid, that the United States is giving to Israel, on top of Israel... Um, being able to effectively um, squelch a lot of those types of operations from Iran and Syria. Uh, remember that Syria, uh, Israel launched preemptive strikes on nuclear facilities in Syria. Um, they were behind the Stuxnet virus in Iran. I mean, we they, they have the ability to at least significantly slow down operations in both those countries. The real question is, if Israel feels emboldened now, to do these preemptive strikes with kind of a, um, a loose commitment by the Obama administration, at least publicly loose commitment by the Obama administration, if we were to um, publicly or even behind closed doors start questioning our continued alliance with Israel, or at least our unconditional alliance with Israel, then I think what you would have is kind of a quickening of the time frame between a conventional conflict between Israel and Iran. Um, I'm not sure, obviously, who would be involved mm -hmm. in that. I do think, though, that it would largely be divided on sectar uh, sectarian or on religious lines with, obviously, Jews um, and, and Shiite Muslims in Iran and Sunnis. Sunnis would, I, I'm not sure what would exactly my, would happen. My, it would be a country-by-country country basis my, to what my would perspe unfold. My perspective is on why uh, the reason to scale back involvement is, is because a portion of involvement leads to more involvement. We've talked about before, looking out on the show, about motivations 
of jihadists. Part of the reasons motivations for jihadists because of support of Israel. We talked if we talked before about the revolution in Iran in seventy nine being a response to Operation Ajax to prevent to, to get us out of the hot seat. And if other I mean it may sound very unsympathetic and almost counter nature to the globalist era that we're in is let another nation deal with their own problems, even if it involves mass death or a, a protracted conflict, at least the blood isn't on our hands. And speaking of massive deaths, um, there, there's something that's often been overlooked. Um, doesn't Israel itself have nuclear weapons? Has that been specifically confirmed? It, it's, it's, always, it's always been the kind of open secret. Um, an, an open stage. secret. Yeah, I mean, everybody, <laughs> if, if you're looking at it very cynically, I mean, the United States probably knows that Israel has nuclear weapons. We know because we still have the receipts. I mean, it's, it's been an open secret. Israel has maintained regional hegemony for since basically its inception. Um, and uh, But the United States and Israel have been very reluctant if they if they even show any willingness to maintain something like that, any um, they showed extreme hesitance to mention Israel's nuclear weapons, what capacities they have, um, how many they have, and what are the conditions in which they would use them. Um, according to the BBC, and this was from um, this was from May twenty six, two thousand eight. The headline reads, Israel has 150 nuclear weapons. And this is from ex-U.S. President Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, the peanut farmer, peanut farmer. <laughs> I just had to. Um, there's, there's also a more recent one, recent report from the Times of Israel. Israel now has 80 nuclear warheads, report says. This what is, what did what uh, did this date to? What year and everything? June third, two thousand thirteen. Um, it's because there are those who, such as you know, there are those who are a little bit outside the fringe areas, such as Webster Tarpley, who argue, why would Iran develop a nuclear weapon when it would equate to their own destruction if they were to lob it at Israel? Well, if you, if you get, I mean, of course he's no longer president, but I mean, if you, you take what Ahmadinejad had said before about wiping Israel off the map. You can think about, well, is that someone just blowing smoke, or is that uh, a legitimate fear, a legitimate concern? I think people in Israel and people like John Hagee hear that, and it's just, I think it provokes, you know, sort of nightmarish type of images. It involves them to respond. Well, I think it, it does embolden them to respond, but, I mean, we're talking about a very... Uh, Iran doesn't, contrary to popular belief, doesn't have a very... I mean, they have an established military, sure, but it's not... It would not be able to stand up to the IDF. Not at all. No, uh, not, not with, basically, the United States and the European Union in Israel's back pocket for um, to, to protect them. I... It it wouldn't it would not pan well for for Iran. I don't think Iran would. I don't think Iran would conduct a preemptive military strike on Israel. Israel would have to, let's say, do another cyber terror attack with another um, virus to attack its nuclear enrichment facilities, or attack 
you know, weapons depots or, um, or like, let's say we were referencing the shipment of arms from Iran to Syria earlier, if Syria directly attacked Iranian military personnel on that shipment, then I think we would have the pertinent question of whether there would be a military conflict that started by as Iran. As far as the first strike by, by Iran, uh, I, I think about, of course, you look at the IDF as being uh, the, military, the military force that's superior to Iran's military force. I think about the, uh, the Iran-Iraq war of the 80s. Uh, the, the technological advantage was on the side of Iraq. But the numerical advantage, I think, was on the side of Iran. And a common tactic for Iran at that time was to send waves of martyrs through, you know, teenagers. And it would sort of uh, take out the landmines and, uh, and stuff like that. And there's the, the, the jihadist mentality behind that of ma martyrdom. So not that it's a definite, but that if, if, the, winds, if the winds sort of sway that the, the cult of martyrdom becomes in fashion in Iran, there's a possibility of a first strike on their part, even without nuclear weapons. And, and to kind of put it into perspective, as of 2012, Israel's gross domestic product is $240.9 and their spending on military is 7.4% of their gross domestic product. That's quite a bit of money, if you do the calculation. Um, and that—that's money that—that that obviously doesn't. I mean, it doesn't take into consideration how much military aid the United States and the European Union are giving them. And, and it even even the information from the CIA World Factbook even states that Israel was able to weather certain economic. Downturns because of outside ties outside the Middle East as well. So it's kind of, you know, reading between the lines is indicating United States monetary aid and what have you has assisted. And did you all know that they actually have natural gas fields that were discovered as well? In Iran or Israel? Israel. Okay. I, I didn't know that, no. Um, Leviathan Field, according to what this information is saying, is... Who named that Leviathan Field? Um, na basically, natural gas fields were discovered off of Israel's coast during the past two years, and their energy security outlook apparently has been brightened by this. The, the Leviathan Field was one of the world's largest offshore natural gas finds this past decade. And there's also the Tama field, which is they're hoping it'll meet their needs beginning right now, basically, middle of 2013. But there, there, there is, you know, public protests. There was pro public protests in mid-2011 around income inequality and rising housing and commodity prices. They And the government has maintained that they will not engage in deficit spending to satisfy populist demands. Um, Israel, in other words, they're 
They receive aid, they, but they are also apparently very frugal with their money. <laughs> Which, not, not to, not to portray a stereotype. But, but you're getting ready to. <laughs> yeah, not to, <laughs> not to. As soon as you said frugal, I knew where you were going. In other words, you know, no special social program, you know. Is that true? No type of special social programs or Or women's social, social programs, things like that. In other words, they, they're very careful where they spend money. They have very, they have more arable land than Syria does, uh, but it's not a very large percentage of land that's that they can farm on. They're dealing mostly with desert and and everything else. So, yeah, you're going to have to be careful what you do with any finances you have. Though they do have resources, which somebody actually in a debate, debate class argued with me about, or actually brought to my attention. It's like, you know what they mean by saying land, milk, and honey? You know, they, there's oil over there. And, well, lo and behold, natural gas fields, natural resources, that sort of thing. So, um, I think this is going to get more and more interesting as time progresses. I think so as well, um, especially now that um, word has uh, is becoming known about the extent to which Russia is supplying arms to Bashar al-Assad's forces, and... Um, like we've already talked about a little bit, I mean, these aren't these aren't just you know your old Kalashnikovs uh, um, pallets of them. We're we're talking about sophisticated missiles uh, and other weaponry that poses a significant threat to the West's um, ability to create a no-fly zone in Syria. Um, there was some speculation that the Obama administration, um, with the backing of uh, NATO and the United Nations and other um, organizations were kind of um, uh, chomping on plans to create a no-fly zone um, in southern Syria. Now, given the relationship now that is uh, becoming revealed between Russia and Syria, do you think that this? Um, do you think that these weapons deals are going to further complicate the United States-Russia relationship? Especially with regards to Middle East issues, I mean, are we seeing another Cold War ideology, uh, Cold War taking out, uh, proxy war taking out, uh, coming into being a, in the a, Middle East? A similar dynamic, but I don't think we can ever sort of revisit the type of dynamic, the exact type of dynamic and tension oh, of associ associated with the Cold War. But when you look at, okay, Russia supplying arms to Syria. Uh, Syria was one of the Arab nations that was a client state of the Soviet Union. So therefore, you don't ha you don't have a totalitarian state in Russia anymore. You have an authoritarian state. the The USSR has been defunct for over twenty years now. But you, well, lo and behold, you see ties maintained. You see ties maintained with previous client states and tension still maintained with the U.S., even though it's not at the level it was during the Cold War era. I find it really interesting, um, in the age where we're trying, where the United States, especially the Obama administration, and also with uh, the, the last Bush administration, we've
put a, a lot of international emphasis on decreasing the proliferation of weapons. Now, that's everything from small arms to nuclear weapons, with the United States and Russia signing um, treaties to decrease the amount of nuclear weapons that they had. I find it really interesting now that uh, with all this information being revealed about Russia supplying small arms and uh, missiles to Bashar al-Assad, as we're starting to compli really complicate our international efforts to stem the tide of these weapons getting into the hands of um, violent groups and that will then turn them on civilian populations, especially the most vulnerable refugee populations like we talked about uh, with the Al-Yamuk district in Damascus. I, and I, I, can, I agree with Mitchell on the part of... You, you're going to see some elements of Cold War era type of stuff, but it's not going to be full-blown because it's, it's just simply a lot more complicated than that nowadays. If you recall regarding, you know, Edward Snowden. His condition for political asylum is he can't leak any more documents regarding the NSA spying program or anything that basically hurts American interests. That was that was by mandate of the Russian government. Um, so, which in a way helps U.S. interests, quote-unquote. So, if they really wanted to poke the U.S. in the eye very, very blatantly, they wouldn't have done just that. So I see it as a giant knot that's getting, you know, tighter and tighter than Gordian's knot at this point. It's getting more and more complicated, and that's one of the reasons why I can see why people refer to George Washington and other founders of the country warning against entangling alliances with other countries because... Permanent alliances was the actual word. I think sometimes people m misunderstand that. If you have a perm permanent alliance, a, a trade alliance, and you might go back to, we're going to bring up uh, Randy and rational self-interest, even though I don't consider myself to be an objectivist or even a big fan of Ayn Rand. But people will act within their own interests. So an alliance based on your own interest or mutual interest is one thing. If you have an unwavering alliance, it becomes like, like a gang dynamic. You have to get somebody's back, whether their actions are justified or unjustified, which could get you either as a person or as, as a nation, as a group, into an unfavorable damaging situation. I think... I think, though, that the the nature of alliances in um, in our now globalist environment are changing. We're not talking about the alliances of World War One and World War Two, where where existing treaties entangled us into conflicts that we we couldn't just escape, and it eventually you know led to, like I said, World War One and World War Two. We're talking about we're talking about whether our current um, alliance with Israel. Um, poses either a threat to our interests or ultimately entangles us in a regional conflagration that there's just not going to be really any end in sight. I think right now Israel stands emboldened that they can do these attacks on, on Syria and Iran without really not much actually international condemnation. I think if we were to signal that we're going to 
not have Israel's back in this particular mm -hmm. case, that those attacks will just continue, and they'll probably be a little uh, more I frequent. Think, I think you would have to... I, I disagree that uh, as far as how uh, support of Israel puts America in harm's way, the relationship with Iran, sanctions against I Iran, hostility from Iran or the Iranian government to the U.S., how much of that is because of the, the potential for a protracted conflict or the, the thick tension between Iran and Israel to one party, if, if Iran goes nuclear and if we, the th I think the threat is decreased if diplomatic ties with Iran is established, and I think the, of course, if when you, diplomatic when you say, ties, when you say diplomatic ties, do you mean Israel-Iran diplomatic ties or Israel-U.S. U.S. Okay. diplomatic ties for uh, Iranian-U.S. ties to be diplomatic ties to be established? The relationship between Iran, uh, excuse me, Israel and the U.S would have to waver, or not be as as one-sided as we have this nation's back and, and everyone knows it. So I think that comes, I mean, the, the threat of those missiles being aimed at us, that's, that's the cost right there. In terms of um, the broadening costs of the conflict that's happening in Syria, what are your all's thoughts on how this conflict is going to end? Is it going to end in Bashar al-Assad being... Um, ousted? Is it going to involve Western powers? Are the Syrian rebels going to be able to galvanize enough support once Assad is out of power to start beginning to create a government? I'm thinking let's assume that Assad is just Al-Assad is ousted and everything else. You go, it's a situation of out of the frying pan and into the fire. You look at what happened with Egypt and other countries, where after a certain stability is gone, though it may not have been a desired form of it, there is a lot of instability for a while. Uh, whether we liked Saddam Hussein or not, there was consistent stability whether he treated his the people in that country well or not. That went away when he was ousted from power and eventually executed. Egypt military eventually came in and said to the new leader and said, you're done, basically. And now they're still trying to figure things out. So only time is going to tell at this point. If there is if there is more behind the scenes foreign involvement then at some point al-Assad is going to be ousted from power. If there is less foreign involvement, it's up in the air. Mitchell, what are your thoughts? Well, well for one, as far as I'm attending level, I think there should be no U.S. involvement. You already knew that. But as far as what could happen, as far as if you look at the civil war in Syria as... Uh, as another part of the Arab Spring, and we look at Egypt as an example. This it, it seems like if you have enough mass pressure, the bow breaks. And in the context of the civil war, you have extreme mass press, pressure evolution from protest to civil war. So I really think it's a matter of time 
before that bow breaks. And as far as what comes after that, that that's the question. Do you think the bow breaking in Syria is going to have to be a NATO-led charge or maybe another international organization charge to get Bashar al-Assad out of power? Or do you think the Syrian rebels will, given the amount of assistance that they're currently receiving from the United States, the European Union, etc., will be able to oust Bashar al-Assad? I, I think so, because if you look at... Uh, you look at Egypt, you have, inter I mean, they left, I've, talk, I've talked about this before, it seems I think history's pattern is that whether it's a stable democracy or even just uh, a, re a revolution being carried out, the, the, the strongest forms of it seem to come from, you know, internal factors, an internal group affecting that country as opposed to external factors leaning on it. Um, I'm of the opinion that, given the dynamics that are happening within Syria, with the Russians supplying advanced uh, missile weaponry to Bashar al-Assad, and that weaponry could very well be used to stop a western no-fly zone in southern Syria, and stop shipments, uh, or at least slow down shipments to Syrian rebels, I don't think Bashar al-Assad is is coming out of power anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Yes, the Syrian rebels are making some pretty um, notable advancements within Aleppo, with, like I said earlier with uh, Khan al-Assal, but, I mean, we're talking about the, the the amount of victories and the extent of the victories that the Syrian rebels are able to be getting right now are seemingly few and far between. Um, I, I, think, I think what is going to happen is that eventually the bow breaks with um, in Syria, and that bow is going to break when a NATO-led involvement is going to um, come into fruition. These plans are not off the table. NATO, the United States, the United Nations, the European Union have all pondered military intervention, um, obviously not necessarily the United Nations, given the fact they don't have a standing military, but they have openly announced that um, they fully would back a military um, um, military action within Syria in order to stabilize Syria. Maybe not necessarily stabilize the entire Middle East, because I think what we have is in Syria is throwing a rock into the pond. Uh, we just see a ripple effect happening coming from Syria and affecting other countries like Iran, Lebanon, um, Iraq, and other countries. Um, I'm not sure when that that red line, so to speak, we keep using that phrase, is going to be crossed with the Obama administration. We we heard from the Obama administration, hey, when they use chemical weapons, that's our red line for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now we keep seeing report after report after report from a myriad of different Syrian uh, human rights organizations saying that chemical and biological weapons are being used. And we're talking about 100,000 people being killed in Syria and biological and uh, chemical weapons are being used. I'm reluctant to say that there's a red line at all with regards to U.S. involvement in Syria. I do, however, see a red line that Netanyahu is uh, fully professing in uh, multiple circles. And I think, I, I'm not sure, I think we'll see more military involvement from Israel mm -hmm. and it's going to put positive pressure on the West to intervene. Otherwise, we're going to have a 
conflict, at the very least between Israel and Syria, if not Israel and Iran, or possibly Syria and Iran against Israel and its Western allies, because in order to stop military weapon shipments going to and from Iran and Syria. I, you heard me referring to some of this stuff as a Gordian knot of sorts, and the permanent alliances that we're referring to becoming so entangling that things get complicated. It reminds me of something from The Onion that a professor, Dr. Leonard, showed once, which was... What, what department was this? Who's Dr. Leonard? Uh, from history, when when he was still alive before he died of a heart attack. Was he, was he the one that taught history of the Soviet Union? Yes. Um, okay, I wanted to take that class, and then my freshman year, I saw that in the cat. You know, I circled the history courses I'm interested in, and then before I had the opportunity to take it, he dies. Um, the image that he showed was from the Onion. It was a joke about World War II. Um, Germany almost declares war on itself. It had a bunch of arrows pointing around. It kind of reminds me of that. It was an actual image of arrows pointing everywhere <laughs> and everything else. Either World War II or World War One, I, I can't remember which. But um, it, it just sort of reminds me of that and why people warned against what you referred and what the founders referred to as permanent alliance. I call it an entangling alliance because I've heard it referred to as an entangling alliance because it gets messy in a hell of a hurry. Um, and we are, once again, way, way over. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so, I, I cannot read that small font from the notes. <laughs> Uh, check the lenses on my glasses. They're fairly no, thick. I don't um, care to. But um, I think we'll wrap it up for now so that we don't bore everybody to death. At least I won't bore everybody to death. I'm, you two have been very interesting throughout the whole thing. I've been kind of boring. But anyway, entertain yourself, educate yourself, empower yourself, and have a good week. This has been another exciting episode of the Next Report Podcast with your hosts Thomas Holbrook II, Mitchell Brown, and Zach Dodson. Our website is thenextreport.com, where you may view show notes and listen to our other podcasts as well as consume other content. The intro to the show is from J.T. Bruce's Plunge into Hyperreality, a part of his album, Dreamer's Paradox, available under Creative Commons at gemendo.com. We are on other social networks such as YouTube, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Google+. Remember to entertain yourself, educate yourself, and empower yourself.